Looking Back in Time, the history show on KCLR with John Moynihan, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltot, Sport and Media. Good evening, you're very welcome along to The History Show here on KCLR. I'm John Moynihan, thanks for joining me once again this week as we take a look back at Kilkenny in years gone by. Coming up on tonight's programme, Pat Reid of the Heritage Council and owner of HeritageMaps.ie on his project to identify and map every mass path in the county of Kilkenny. Local historian Owen Swithin Walsh is back with us again this week for part two of his in-depth guide through the calendar year of 1923. The Irish Civil War has just ended, but as the Irish general elections loomed, how did the candidates of Carlo and Kilkenny fare? And Helen Keeley Dunn, the caretaker owner of Phil Barnes House, which is a coal miner's thatched cottage situated in the picturesque village of Clock in Castlecomer, tells us about the restoration work that has been happening at the near 200-year-old dwelling. So all of that plus plenty more besides over the course of the next hour. I do hope that you can stay with me. As always, I'd love your thoughts and interaction throughout the programme, so please do get in touch. You can text me on the dinnersready.ie sponsored KCLR text and WhatsApp line on 083 306 9696 or you can email the programme at thehistoryshow at kclr96fm.com our webpage and podcast for season two of the programme is up and running. You can access it at kclr96fm.com slash the hyphen history hyphen show. So you can listen back to the programme there or on the KCLR app. And this week's show will be uploaded there later this evening if you want to have another listen. But first on tonight's programme, we're speaking to Pat Reid. Pat works for the Heritage Council and runs the website heritagemaps.ie. He also has a Heritage GIS consultancy and carries out survey work on heritage-related projects. By day, both Pat and his wife have a company called Wicklow Willow, which makes baskets and does garden sculptures, among other things. Pat appears on the programme this evening asking a favour of our listeners. He's attempting to carry out a scoping exercise, documenting and mapping every mass path in County Kilkenny and he needs your help. But rather than me explain what exactly Pat's looking for, let's hear from the man himself. The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. I've been asked by Regina Fitzpatrick, the Heritage Officer in Kilkenny, to undertake a scoping exercise concerning mass paths. So the idea is that we will look at a couple of places and the mass paths in these areas with a view to creating a sort of a schematic whereby next year or, or the year after we would look at fully mapping all the mass paths in Kilkenny. So the two areas I'm looking at mapping at the moment are broadly around Conaghy and um, Gores Bridge. So those two areas in particular are going to get uh, a lot of attention from me in the next month, just while I look at the mass paths in the area. I would ideally love if some of your listeners had some information on this and were willing to make contact with me. Um, it would be great to get their knowledge and maybe they could point me in directions to get information as well. I'd really like to see what's there and then I can compile it and create a schema for mapping mass paths in the county going forward. Now, this schema that we're doing, this scoping exercise, will be then used to roll out to other county councils across the country if it's successful. And the idea that is that we will be able to create a small report on the scoping exercise with the view of creating a much larger report on the mass paths of the county in the full-blown version. And um, we would also be mapping them 
And when I say mapping them, it would be putting a point information for anything that's uh, tangible, like mass uh, altars, mass rocks, prayer stones, things like that, that, that may be along the way. But I'd also like to map the route, the known routes of these, these mass paths. So Pat, ultimately, what's inspiring the idea to undertake this scoping exercise of the mass paths in County Kilkenny? Well, the idea would be to map the, the mass paths, the extent of them so that we have a record of them for the future. And they might be offered some statutory protection under law in the future. At the moment, there's no statutory protection. Um, but if we record them now, at least we have the roots of them recorded before that knowledge disappears. So as I said, it's Conaghy and Goresbridge are the two areas in particular that I'm, I'm looking to, to investigate initially. So if there's anybody there with information and they could get in touch, it would be really, really appreciated. Now, when I talk about mass paths, I'm talking about three different things. There were the pilgrim path type mass paths where people would cross an area, maybe a valley or a mountain range to get to a particular destination where they would attend a mass. Perhaps that would happen on a pattern day or a saint's day as we know it. Then there is the um, penal law type mass paths where people had to go to mass in hiding. So they would attend a, a mass rock or an outdoor altar. And these mass paths are still dotted all over the country and, and still fairly well known. These are very important uh, and I really want to see them recorded in their full uh, extent if possible. And then there's the later mass paths, mass paths that people used in rural areas to walk to church. This would have been the case up until the 60s, 70s, even the 80s, where people would walk a number of miles to church on a Sunday. And these are very valid mass paths too, and we'd like to get those recorded. So you may know of mass paths in your area leading to your local church that people would have traditionally walked each Sunday. It seems like an enormous body of work, Pat. Overall, how broad a project do you expect it to be? It's going to be a, a very broad project. It's going to be a very big project in, in, the, in its full extent. But at the moment, we're, we're trying to just get a sense of how big it can be and how much information can be recorded. We're going to, to visit the Inshanicus. Um, we're going to look at um, the annals for the area. We're going to really try and get a sense of the depth of information that may be there. There is some little, small amount of work done, I think, I believe, on mapping them already. So I'm going to be looking at that too and delving into the library sources also. So again, the really important information is going to lie with local knowledge. And that's what I really want to get a sense of. I want to see what people can tell me about MathPads in their area and what they can bring to us about MathPads. Now, I know people may have concerns over actually telling me where a MathPad passes through land, where there was a right-of-way or may never have been a right-of-way. Um, they might have concerns about people wanting to visit and use the mass path to, to traverse um, the old route and it might be crossing farmland now that, that is shut off for one reason or another. We won't be looking to, to get any sense of opening up these mass paths again. If your land is private, it'll remain private and nobody will have the, the right to encroach upon it like that. We just want to get an idea of where the mass paths are um, and get an idea of, of the shape they're in if they're still visible or an extant or if they have been ploughed out or disappeared into a hedgerow. You know, we just want to record them as best we can before they, they fully disappear, before the knowledge of them fully disappears. So I'm hoping again that your listeners can, you know, give us a sense of what's there, can just provide that information, make contact with me, and I'm happy to, to take calls and emails at any stage over the next few weeks. I have to have it done by the end of October. So ideally, I'd like to hear from them in the next week so that I can actually get out onto the ground and look at the math paths.
So my email address is info at wicklowwillow.ie. That's info at wicklowwillow.ie for anybody who wants to email me. And I, I welcome calls and emails from anybody who wants to get in touch. 87 7503. A survey like this seems like a real labour of love. Why have you taken it on ultimately? So the reason we're un- I'm undertaking this survey is I was contacted by Regina Fitz- or Fitzpatrick in the Heritage Office and she asked me about doing the math pads and recording them. And at first I thought this would be a very difficult project to undertake because it's, it's not a very tangible heritage. A lot of it is, is lost or broken up a little bit. But I became intrigued by the idea and I thought this is highly important to record and map these while while they're still there because, as I say, they're becoming intangible, they're becoming a part of history that we can't see anymore. They're becoming lost on us and it's very important that we actually record them now. So having thought about it for a couple of days, I thought this is a project I'd really like to get my teeth into and I really do believe that these MathPats deserve the full protection of our, our government. And by creating a way and a means in which we can record them now, we're preserving them for the future. And at some point, I'm hoping they will get that statutory protection. Finally, Pat, when are you hoping to be in a position to release some results from this survey? So we're hoping to have this recording done for this first element of of recording MathBats. And we're hoping to have it completed by the end of October. And then I will collate what we have. I would like to have a report out by mid-November, all going well, uh, mid to late November at the very latest. We would have a report that we could then disseminate back to anyone who is us, anyone who, who wants to hear the final output. I'm happy to create a, a mailing list and send a full report to whomever, but it will also be available then through the Kilkenny County Council Heritage website. And a big thank you to Pat Reid of the Heritage Council for coming on the programme this evening to tell us a bit more about his scoping project to document and map all of the mass paths in County Kilkenny. As you've been hearing, Pat plans to have the project finished by the end of this month, so he needs your help in finding and identifying them sooner rather than later. So if you can help Pat out, ideally in the next week or so, please do contact him. I'll give those details again. You can email Pat at info, I-N-F-O, at wicklowwillow.com. That's info at wicklowwillow.ie or you can give him a call on 087 958 7503. That's 087 958 7503. And the best of luck to Pat with that. We look forward to hearing how he got on. It's time for a break now on the programme, but do stay tuned because after that I'll be speaking to local historian Owen Swithin Walsh for part two of our retrospective on Kilkenny in 1923. Don't go away. Looking back in time, the history show on KCLOR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltot, Sport and Media. You're listening to the history show on KCLOR with John Moynihan. You're very welcome back to the programme. Last week, we heard about the conclusion of the Irish Civil War and the ensuing consequences that it had for Kilkenny and Ireland, as we had a retrospective on the first half of 1923. This evening, local historian Owen Swithin Walsh is back to give us part two of that retrospective. With the war now over, the Irish general elections loomed. How would the candidates running in the Carroll Kilkenny constituency fare? And what role did Civil War politics play in the election's outcome? 
Last week, when we left the retrospective, we heard about the death of James Duffer Morrissey, a man with IRA connections who was shot dead in Kilkenny Jail in June 1923. This evening, as we resume the retrospective, we're beginning with the death of another IRA-connected prisoner of Kilkenny Jail, this time a 16-year-old who was murdered just a short time later. Wednesday nights from 6, this is KCLR's History Show. Most controversially, which um, was very sad, there was another poor young lad that was killed um, um, in the in the few months later, in September 1923. His name was Patrick O'Hanlon, and he was only 16 years old, the poor young lad. And he was in Kilkenny Jail. He was in Nafinia, which is like the the um, the Boy Scout movement of the IRA. And he was in Kilkenny Jail and shot through a window again. Um, and what's very sad and tragic about his life was that his mother had only died the week before and he wasn't given license to go out for her funeral and she died of natural causes but, and he was actually from Carrick on shore I should say um, and they said just before he was shot from the window he was reading the letter the last letter his mother had sent him and he only received the letter after she had died so it was all kind of very tragic he was shot through a window he was bled out he was brought to the Cora military hospital but died along the way and people are very angry over this over his age I suppose and the fact the civil war was well over when he was shot so there was a lot of controversy even though and deaths unfortunately even when the civil war was over now just it's important to remember the 1923 general election which took place at the very end of august 1923 so you're only talking three months since the civil war ended and i suppose what had happened between the uh, the last general election which was only 14 months before in june 1922 is we had a civil war in between and actually lots of TDs had died, you know, the likes of Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith, they'd all died, um, you know, Carl Brewer uh, had all died, um, so there's lots of TDs actually gone. But also, the Free State wanted kind of a better mandate, I suppose you could call it that, so they held the general election at the end of August. Our constituency was actually nearly the same, um, all the controversy about boundaries now, um, at the time it was actually all of Carlo, all of Kilkenny, in one constituency, and it was a five-seater. And just in relation to contemporary events about border changes. Back then, uh, you could have more than, they'd all, nearly always put the counties in together so they didn't break the county border by increasing the seat number. So at, nowadays, we only have three, four, and five seats in the constituency, but back then they could have six, seven, eight, even nine seats were in Galway constituency in the 1923 general election to just try to keep all the county boundaries in order. But anyway, that's a, that's a story for another day. But the general election comes along anyway. Um, it's a big deal for a few reasons. One, it's the first general election where all women over the age of 21 have the right to vote. And that's a big deal. So people will know 1918 was when women get to vote. However, it's actually only women over 30. And, we, and you also have a separate qualification that you have to be married to someone or you yourself have to own land or property to get to vote. So a good 50 to 60 percent of Kilkenny women would not have been able to vote in the general election in uh, 1918. So, for example, the most obvious uh, example of Kilkenny would be a farmer's family, a farmer and the wife. They, they would own their own land by 1922, 23, um, or even by 1918. But um, what happens? The wife would be able to vote because she's entitled. But just say she had five or ten daughters, none of them would be able to vote. 
uh, and that's the way, uh, even if they were over the age. So that's the way it works. So to give universal suffrage to all women over 21 was a big deal. That happened in the 23 general election, a whole new group coming in. Um, you would have also, it would have been with PR, so for the second time been using PR, the one we know and love uh, today, um, the one, two, three, four, five voting. Uh, so that was all kind of fairly new as well. Um, the results were quite surprising. Um, I think on a national level in Kilkenny, maybe not so much. But um, I suppose what had happened, the, the way it was meant to go for W.T. Cosgrave, who's a local TD, he led the, the general election um, with Cumann and Yale. This is a brand new party, Cumann and Yale, which later, of course, joined the others to become Fine Gael. Um, and he actually helped establish that in April 1923 with Peter Danucri, the mayor of Kilkenny, who was already who was also a senator in um, up in Leinster House. They fired away with this election, and they kind of ran three candidates. They would have hoped to have done very well. Um, didn't work out like that according to plan. On the, on a general scheme, they won Cumann and Yale won 39% of the votes. Now. Any party, including Fine Gael today, would be delighted to win 39% first preference votes. Uh, you no, know, 20-21, 22% is the most recent elections. But uh, I suppose they thought, you know, that that means that 60% of people uh, living in Ireland didn't give them the number one, even though they led it through the Civil War. So there's obviously lots of different opinions, judging by the result in uh, Ireland. So it's not all kind of black and white. In Kilkenny, Cosgrave uh, top the poll though that was always a given and he had one of the highest votes in the entire country he had nearly three times the quota which politicians today could only dream of um, uh, and, and and so he, he, he uh, kind of just romped home to victory Eamon de Valera did similar though in the Clare election um, he, the t- two of them competed for the top votes in the country Richard Mulcahy next to get a seat in Kilkenny was Dennis Gorey so Kilkenny, Carlo Kilkenny's constituency had the leader of Cumann who was like the President of Ireland, well, pre, you know, Prime Minister of Ireland, basically, the Taoiseach of Ireland at the day, Cosgrave. The leader of the Farmers' Party as well was from Kilkenny, and he was Dennis J. Gorey of Burn, Burn Church. He was involved in lots of things in farming and the Farmers' Union and everything, which is basically like the IFA uh, is today. And, and so he came in the second season, so he did very, very well. Um, Sean Gibbons. Uh, Ram Tubb, who's a local guy who's involved in Sinn Féin, but he ran for Cumann and Yale. He's all the GA in Kilkenny as well. Um, his family are still around uh, Kilkenny, of course. Um, he rammed home, but basically getting all Cosgrave's surplus, all his transfers. And then next up, um, you had the Labour Party coming in. So that was quite good for the Labour Party. You kind of forget about them. They got the next seat. And finally, uh, anti-treaty Sinn Féin, as they were called, or the Republicans uh, is what people would have called them, and Michael Shelley of Callan, he, he took the other seat. And if they had been an extra seat, it would have been the anti-treaty candidate as well. So all in all, the anti-treaty people got 25% of the vote, which was something, I think, uh, which was a surprise to come in and yell, them getting 39% of the vote, and the anti-treaty, who they felt, would have been a little bit more hated, uh, getting uh, 25% of the vote. So uh, there were the five seats for... Um, Carlo Kilkenny and a very kind of dramatic election uh, but it showed the diverse opinion in Kilkenny and in Ireland. It wasn't all one side or the other. There was lots of people in the middle going, I don't really care about what these other two, I'm going to support the other candidates, independent 
farmers or uh, the Labour Party. The League of Nations is a big deal for Ireland as well. We kind of forget about it now, but Ireland has always wanted to be seen as separate as England. So the fact in September 1923, the Irish with local candidates, local um, TD, WT Cosgrave, went over to Switzerland, over to Geneva to lead Irish into the uh, Ireland into the League of Nations with a big deal. If anyone doesn't know the League of Nations, it's basically a precursor to the UN. And it was just set up after the First World War. And I think we were country number 51 to be admitted into us. And we um, we were all cheered along the floor in Geneva, uh, the Irish delegation. We sat down beside uh, New Zealand, I believe. And um, it was just because Ireland had always felt that we were always in the English shadow. The idea that we could now be at a table on the world stage, literally sitting beside, you know, Great Britain over there. And here's Ireland here on its own by its own delegation was a big deal and it kind of filters through right to this present day where you saw um, quite recently, you know, Michal Martin, Leo Radcar all over in the UN making speeches in, in New York. So it's it's um, it was a big deal for, for the country then. Now, when you get to October 23, there's another base of uh, civil war comes out and it's often forgotten, but there was a massive hunger strike and it was basically all the prisoners, anti-treaty prisoners, both men and women, there was a few hundred women, and thousands and thousands of men, it's kind of hard to get a figure, but there was up to 12,000 at one time in jail, male prisoners are basically in internment camps. It dropped down to about 8,000 at a certain stage, so we're not 100% sure, but there was thousands in jail still in October 1923. The free state didn't really know what to do with them. They didn't want to leave them out too early in case, you know, things kicked off again. And then they kind of didn't, um, they... It, it, but then it was costing a fortune to keep them in jail as well. So what happened though, the prisoners felt forgotten about, which you kind of would have, you know, you wouldn't blame them. Um, and they they go on a massive hunger strike. Um, and when it starts, there's thousands of prisoners on hunger strike. But at the end, there's not that many, but it takes till October for the first people to die. Um, oh, sorry, it actually goes into November for the first week to die. And there's a Kilkenny connection to this. A guy called Dini Barry is one of the first guys to die. He's from Cork actually. But he actually worked in Kilkenny for a few years in the Drapers and he did serve his time in Kilkenny. And he actually took part kind of in the 1916 rebellion in Kilkenny, where he was in with the Irish volunteers and the IRB. And he was arrested in Kilkenny and sent to jail after 1916 with the group of Kilkenny internees and sent to England. And um, uh, he's one of the guys that dies. So he had a lot of friends in Kilkenny. Um, and he's one of the first guys to die in hunger strike. And just to show the difference, he goes down, his body is brought down to Cork. Um, the priests in Cork say, uh, because of the bishop's diktas, that no anti-treaty Republican prisoner is allowed to be left inside the church. So his funeral has to take place um, in um, basically the Sinn Féin Hall, basically, and then he's brought straight to the graveyard to be buried. So it's a complete difference than we'll say another guy who died from one of the strike, i.e. Terence McSweeney, who died just three years pre uh, before, and the bishop actually said his mass. So um, it's, a, it's a huge difference in the space of a few years, but uh, a lot of the Kenny friends and uh, um, a lot of the Kenny people in their statements in later life when they tried to apply for a pension, men and women in Kilkenny would have talked about how they went hunger strike at this time. Now, some were 20 days in hunger strike, some were 30 days in hunger strike. The fact they didn't die doesn't make it any less traumatic. And I always say that, that you can get a lot of damage, and people see you get damage after 14, 15 days, uh, irreversible damage that kind of, you know, causes you trouble for the rest of your life, uh, even though um, you came off the hunger strike. So um, that happens in October. Now, the, the hunger strike is kind of called off 
at the end of November and it's obviously some kind of compromise behind scenes because within a few weeks the vast majority of the prisoners are released and they're all released um, and lots of them, especially in the Cora, thousands of them are released um, just before Christmas including my own granduncle actually I just saw he came home on the 23rd of December 1923 after um, over a year in jail because he's in the Antitreasy column down in, down in Munkine and um, you do kind of you do kind of wonder what it would be like for them coming home after being in jail, what the lay of the land is, what their neighbours think of them, and then coming home, you know, what do their parents think, like coming home for the Christmas season as well. Is it good, bad? What do they do with their lives afterwards? Because, you know, it was very hard to get a job if you're on the anti-treaty side. That was the thing. That's why so many of them left to um, uh, the USA in the 1920s. Uh, jobs were hard to come by, but especially hard to come by if you're on the anti-treaty side, the wrong side of the Civil War, as it turned out. Um, so it's uh, 1923 closes a lot better than it started with, in that at least Irish people aren't killing Irish people. However, um, what lay ahead in the future, it was very difficult to know. The Civil War had cost the state about £50 million. To put that into context, about... At 25 million pounds it would run ireland for you back then uh, and that's every, all the services and and the tax you took in and and what you spent about 25 million pounds so and the the 50 million would be the price of the army and paying all the soldiers and equipment but also all the compensation that had to be paid out for people that were killed but mostly for property and rail lines that were blown up or, or knocked down so uh i suppose 1923 and it's important i'm glad you kind of toss it there, John, that just to talk, think about the what happened directly after. Because we have the habit of kind of cutting us off in May and going, oh, Civil War ended, end the story. But lots of things were happening as, as, as the months went by. But at least, at least, at least there was some form of peace or truce, at least, that, um, that uh, we weren't uh, killing each other. And that, that, that was always, always a benefit. A huge word of thanks to local historian Owen Swithin Walsh there for his depth of knowledge in describing the events occurring in Kilkenny 100 years ago. Again, I highly recommend Owen's book Kilkenny in Times of Revolution 1900-1923 which was a hugely valuable resource for me as I carried out my research in the making of this series of programmes. Just to mention also, the South Kilkenny Historical Society will be holding a talk featuring Owen on Friday, October the 20th at 8pm in Mulnavat Parish Hall. He'll be speaking more about Kilkenny and Ireland in 1923 following the conclusion of the Irish Civil War. And I highly, highly recommend your attendance at that because Owen is so knowledgeable on the topic. Time for another commercial break now, but do stay tuned because when we come back, I'll be speaking to Helen Keeley Dunn, the owner-caretaker of Phil Barron's house in Clock, Castlecomer. Talk to you in two. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltocht, Sport and Media. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. And you're welcome back to part three of The History Show. Now, are you familiar with Phil Barnes' house in Clock? For those of you who are not, it's a charming thatched cottage situated in the picturesque village of Clock just outside of Castlecomer. 
It was once owned by a man by the name of Phil Byrne, or Fee as he was affectionately known by his family. The cottage is now owned and maintained by Helen Keeley Dunn and her family, and they have traced their ancestral connection to the house back nearly 200 years. The house is more than just a property to them, it's a direct link to their ancestors and Irish heritage. Recently, the house celebrated an open day as it invited members of the public to come and visit and experience the dwelling for themselves. We'll be hearing a little bit more about that next week, but this evening, in the first of two parts, Helen tells us the history of the house and the journey to restoring it to its current day state. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. My dreams I still go To a place that I know And I long to see once again It's a place dear to me And it always will be It's my old cottage home in the Glen Phil Byrne's house is a little miner's thatched cottage, uh, two bedrooms, originally one room, um, and then sometime maybe in the, sometimes in the 1800s, 1900s, we're not sure, they added a partition in the middle of the house made of silt from the river, because there's a river just nearby um, in Clock. And um, they made that so it became a two little roomed house. But it's on Clock Bridge in Castlecomer, County Kilkenny. Uh, it's a miner's touch cottage, as I said, um, because my great grandfather was a miner. Actually, all my family are miners in that sense. I'm a miner's daughter. My father worked in the mines for a while, John Keeley from the Swan. Um, I'm a miner's granddaughter. Um, on both sides, my grandfather Jim Keeley, um, my uncle Peter Keeley, my uh, family on the house that clock belongs to. They were all miners. Um, some went to uh, Jarrow over in Newcastle and um, had my grandmother and my grandmother on my father's side and she came back to Ireland and yada yada yada. As a little girl I couldn't say uh, Philip, I say Fee. So um Fee's house is what it's known as to everybody in the family, um, Fee's house. So, yeah, Fee was 89 when he died. And um, before he died, well, he was worried about what was going to happen to the house. He was worried that um, it wouldn't be, it would fall down, basically. He was worried that uh, it was going to be a burden to anybody who took it on. And at that stage, my mother, who was alive, because um, she died just three years after Fee, um, but at that time, just before Fee died, in 2000, I think, 2001, nobody nobody knew what to do with it. And my mother thought about giving it to uh, Clock Heritage. And um, so it was put out there to the family and everybody was like, oh, you know, we have our own houses and whatever. And um, Ambrose Dunn and myself, uh, we um, lived in Cressy, Cressy Yard, and another mining area, of course. And... Um, we decided to take it on, and that was in 2001. Um, so since then, I've owned it. Um, and we, we'd spent a lot of money on it back then, getting it all done up. And we got some lovely lady from Wexford 
uh, her name escapes me now, but she came and she did all the walls first um, and she put like horse hair and all that into it. She did a huge work. And of course, because it's attached house, it doesn't last long. So um, we minded it as best we could. We lit little fires in it. We tried to keep it uh, from the damp. We tried everything. We all would use it. Everybody would go down and use it. And it became like it's a place that everybody, my brother stayed in it. Uh, all my kids stayed in it. It, it was just a place that um, actually we had Australian uh, visitors. They came and they were touring Ireland and they stayed there for about three months, I think. They wrote me a lovely book afterwards all about it. But um, I've mislaid that. We don't know how old it is, and I do want to get somebody from Trinity College in Dublin to come down and to age it. Um, it's original. All is original. Doors original. Windows is original. The inside is original. When you walk through the front half door, which is red, which was always the original colour, and you look up, um, it's all original up there. So it's all the original touch and the original beams and uh, same in the bedroom. So we want to we want to age it. The story that we were all told as children, my grandmother, her grandmother gave birth to her mother in that little bedroom, plus seven other baby girls who all lived. So there was eight baby girls born in that bedroom and one of those became my great grandmother. And the story goes that uh, the midwife came up um to the kitchen where my grandfather was uh, up waiting for the baby to be born and he was sitting by the fire which was then an open stove and uh, an open area um, which I never saw in my lifetime. My mother did because she was raised there too. So um, the nurse came up and she said to him, I'm not sure of his name, we're looking for that, um, another little baby girl, your eighth little daughter. And he said, another little washerwoman. She says, welcome to us the first. That's the story that goes. So my great-grandmother, blank, because we're not sure what her second name was. It could have been Brennan, could have been Delaney. But she married a man called Tom Byrne. And Tom Byrne um, was um, the first person to... Uh, dig the shaft in the outside Castle Comer in the Deer Park, uh, which was a huge mining um, area up until late, only lately, I'd say, um, because all that is the Castle Comer plateau, plateau uh, geologically. So it is very rich in anthracite, which is the best coal you can get. He dug that and they were looking for a house at the time. They realised that um, my, grand, my great-grandmother's house was available. There was nobody there. Obviously, her parents had died and her sisters had gone to America. They'd gone to Scotland. They'd gone to Lockham Bridge, I believe. They had gone all over the place. And she and Tom Barn went into the house and lived there and uh, died there. Um, they had my grandmother and my grandmother had my mother. And my mother lived there as well all her life, spent all her life there until she married my father, John Keeley, and moved to the Swan, where we were from. So that's a nice story. That's nice to be able to pass on. There is, like, I, I have a son who has a who has a child. That means that there's now seven generations that we're able to say has crossed that threshold um, down there in that little house sat on the half door, lay over the half door. The half door has become a real iconic thing that people want to get photographs at. So um, 
we've now my little grandson Finn he's four he is uh, the latest to sit on that half door like I did and like my mother did my grandmother did my great-grandmother did and possibly her mother as well so that's I like that oh and my son of course I forgot him The reason we had an open day was that the house was unbelievably derelict. Considering we had only done it up maybe, you know, as I said, back in the early 2000s, it, it just, the weather absolutely pulled the thatch off, as well as the crows. Um, oh, it was so bad. It was so bad. People used to, you know, comment that, you know, was it ever going to be sorted? And it looked bad. It looked like an eyesore. Actually, one day Ambrose was um, down there cleaning it and a couple passed on the road from, I don't know where we're from, but I'm going to say the area because he, he, he didn't know where they were from either, but they were walking, so they can't have been, you know, coming from far. And they said to him, oh, why don't you just um, put a bulldozer through it? And he was very angry and said, no, like, this is our history. This is, as my daughter in Los Angeles, who did most of the work, actually, on uh, organising the opening day, um, Sophie, she said, it's like, when when you're there, you can feel the ancestors. It's like a book into the past. And there ain't, there ain't too many of them left. So I believe that there was a load of those little houses, little miners' houses, um, all along the area. And ours is the last one standing um that's very sad and um we we were aware it was bad but due to ill health in on my part and due to um absolute lack of funds we just couldn't fix it for a while and then my son jim and my daughters uh, sophie who lives in los angeles helena and stephanie they all said to me mommy we can't let this fall and of course that was the last thing i wanted to do i'm the caretaker of that house so my son and daughters come up with the idea of having a GoFundMe page and the public were so generous, the clock community were so generous, all the different little um, groups in the in the clock uh, community all gave money um, and we had it in every newspaper we could think of we had it we had it on facebook it's still on facebook under phil barnes house clock castle comer county kenny we got we collect all this money and uh, people as i said were very generous and there was still a deficit so um we were kindly given uh, a very nice gift to uh, fill up that deficit and then i went to kilkenny um county council uh, with the help of councillor john brennan from clock who was wonderful to us Minister Malcolm Noonan, who was wonderful to us. Um, and let me see, our, our wonderful Thatcher. I can only have praise for our Thatcher and his men and his men. Our Thatcher is Philip Doran. Um, and he, I mean, they all, everybody wanted to help. And our conservationist, James Powell. We all got together outside clock, outside the house and everybody put their speak in. And this was during COVID. Uh, we wore masks, we they videoed all the damage and we all we all had our say. And um, at the end, everybody got together and decided that we were going to save the house. So the house was saved. And Philip Dorn did amazing work because when he went in there, he found out that actually the walls were collapsing. And an interesting aside, which I did speak about on the open day when I thanked everybody, 
um, the aside was that when they went in to do the roof and they found that the walls were collapsing and I mean the photographs show how bad it was one one of the Thatcher, Thatcher's helpers, I, I can't remember his name, a lovely young man, and he told me that if, if you stood in the back of the house, the backyard, it's a tiny little area in the back, and you looked through the tiny little windows, and they're small because um, you had to pay rent for your sunlight, so the windows are all small, so you didn't have to pay a lot of rent. The windows are tiny, about maybe a child can get through the window, that's all. And um, there's no back door. But you could look through the back window, through the house, through the front window, over the window. You could look through uh, a hole in the thatch and the wall, right through the front road where people were driving up and down. It was that bad. You could see through the thatch. Now, you're not meant to see through the thatch. There's meant to be so many layers, but it was so badly uh, fallen down. And they discovered that my father had put in a beam of steel in probably before I was born in 1960. Uh, I was born in 1965. So in about 1960, when he was seeing my mother, he welded because he was a, a fitter, he welded a beam or, or two beams together to hold up one particular uh, joist. And they all discovered, the carpenter, the conservation, conservationist man, the catcher, all discovered that was the only thing holding up the house. It would have, it would have fell years before, only that it, it was holding it up. And I was so proud of that because and I said this at the open day my father always just said with the house is mammies you know and he never saw it as being any you know anything um, to him but in actual fact he has saved the house for the last uh, 50 years and uh, he didn't know that A big thank you to Helen Keeley Dunn there, the owner-caretaker of Phil Barnes House in Clock. We'll hear part two of that chat with Helen on next week's programme when she'll be telling us more stories about the home, what it's used for today and the open day that they celebrated recently. Now though, it's time for a break. I'll talk to you shortly. The History Show on KCLOR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltox, Sport and Media. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. And you're welcome back to the final part of tonight's History Show. Now we'll look ahead to next week's programme. And as I mentioned earlier, Helen Keeley Dunn will be joining us once again to give us more stories and insights into Phil Barnes' house and clock, as well as telling us a bit more about the open day that they had recently. We'll also be chatting to Callan author John Fitzgerald about his new book Invaders, which is a historical drama set in the Cromwellian age in the turbulent mid-17th century, which features Kilkenny City and County predominantly. It tells the story of how a small band of warriors defend the most powerful army on earth. So I'm very excited to chat to John next week, and if you're interested in that yourself, just to mention that John's book is actually launching this coming Friday night, October the 6th, at 8pm in Kyo's Pub in Callan. And all are welcome to attend, so the best of luck to John with that. That's just about it for this evening's show. Thanks very much for joining me. Thanks to all of our contributors. A reminder that Pat Reid, who is looking for your contributions on Kilkenny's Maths 
mass paths can be contacted at info at wicklowwillow.ie or you can give him a call on 087 958 7503 that's 087 958 7503 a reminder of Owen Smith and Walsh's talk about Kilkenny post-civil war in 1923 it's being hosted by the South Kilkenny Historical Society and it's on Friday October the 20th at 8pm in Mulnavat Parish Hall uh, but that's just about it for this evening's programme. So thanks very, very much for joining me. We'll do it all over again next week, just after the six o'clock news. Do stay tuned to KCLR because Natalie Lennon is up next with Fully Loaded. But from me, John Moynihan, have a very good evening and I'll talk to you again next week. Good night to you. The History Show on KCLR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltock, Sport and Media.